On the 18th and the 19th of March, 2019, innovators from the public and private sectors came together to discuss African climate concerns and plans to address these concerns. The event called Africa Climate Week was held in Accra, Ghana, and focused on bridging the divide between parties to the UN's push for climate action and non-party entities looking to make a difference at national and communal levels in their own ways. A few years before then, in 2015, all 54 African countries were part of the 195 countries to sign the Paris Climate Agreement, COP21, within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCC, to deal with greenhouse gas emission mitigation and adaptation. Currently, 50 African countries are part of the 187 countries who have ratified this signed agreement. Welcome to Port Save Africa, and we bring this story to talk with you about everything from what climate change is, why much attention is being paid to climate change in Africa, what are the current and future effects of climate change, what our African leaders have to say, and what we can do to combat and mitigate climate change as African people. My name is Oyin Adairele, and shortly later in the course of this episode, I'll be joined by Habiba Dagash, a PhD student at Imperial College, studying energy system transformations to mitigate climate change in Nigeria. We'll be talking about her research, her experience at the COP25, and how our African countries, with Nigeria as an example, can adapt to climate change, especially in relation to energy systems. Please stay Africa. tuned. Welcome to Pod Save Africa. 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 Welcome. So if you are an avid Positive Africa listener, you may have picked up on the fact that in several of our news updates, we've kind of shared stories that have to do with either like, like a mass flooding or uh, a country or a city running out of water or even the Cyclone Idia um, deep dive that we had towards the end of 2019. And us here on this team, we started to ponder about this because we would make all the slight jokes that, oh, ha, 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 must be climate change. So we decided to actually do a, a deep dive into that to research into what is, what is the effect of climate change on our African continent? What is truly going on? And are there indeed parallels between the stories that we've covered and shared and um, climate change and its effects. And of course, of course there are, but we wanted to come with more concrete evidence for you, our listeners, and to provide like a holistic view into what climate change is and what it's doing on our continent. And so that's why we decided to have this episode and uh, to kind of approach and introduce the topic, we should first of all start by defining climate change. I think that's a good start to, to begin with. And to do that, we have to move a little, one step back and talk about what climate is. 
um, many of you in secondary school or middle school probably had to define climate in school. And hopefully a lot of you remember what that is. But if you don't, the first thing to remember is that there is a difference between weather and climate. Climate is, um, weather is part of climate, but weather is like a smaller subset of it. Climate being the average weather condition in a particular area over a long period of time, whereas weather is just a mix of events that happen each day in our atmosphere. So it's kind of like a short-term condition of the atmosphere. That's what weather is, while climate is a prolonged um, version of weather. So with that distinction in mind, climate change is a long-term change in the average weather patterns. And that includes patterns such as precipitation or rainfall, temperature, wind patterns that have come to define the Earth's local, regional, and global climates. Now, um, most of climate change has been observed in the form of global warming which is the rise in global temperatures due mainly to increasing concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That is global warming, but global warming is just one aspect of climate change. Now with that introduction in mind to what climate is, what climate change is, we are not going, we're now going to talk about how is the African continent being affected by climate change compared to the rest of the world. Well, climate change is literally and figuratively reshaping the continent as we know it. And this has been covered by several reports. For instance, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, says that the rate of increase in temperatures across Africa, which is global warming, is surpassing the global rate of temperature increase. And this is an analysis done by the Washington DC based Brookings Institution. Um, this further says that seven out of the 10 most climate vulnerable nations in the world are located in Africa. For more evidence, warming in Africa has exceeded the limits of natural variability. According to the IPCC's assessment report 5, AR5, the near surface temperatures have risen by 0.5 degrees Celsius over the past century. Um, they further say that it's very likely that mean admiral temperatures have increased over the past century over most of the African continent, with the exception of areas of the interior of the continent where data coverage has been determined to be insufficient to draw conclusions about temperature trends. Um, more reviews and more research shows that climate change is exacerbating all of the problems that the African continent is already dealing with, such as food shortage, exposure to diseases, ETC, now, we just want to also make this point that this is not a new thing. Um, the African continent has been dealing with the effects of climate change since the 1970s. So it's not new, it's an ongoing problem. And the, the issue is now is how do we address this? Especially, especially because seven of the 10 most countries are at risk are in Africa. And Africa is barely responsible for 7% of the global greenhouse gas burden of the world. In fact, each year, Africa produces an average of just over one metric ton of the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide per person, according to the US Department of Energy's International Energy Annual 2002. Whereas the most industrialized African countries such as South Africa generates just 8.44 metric tons per person, 
and the least developed countries such as Mali generates less than a tenth of a metric ton per person. By comparison, each American generates almost 16 metric tons per year. So this is times two of the most industrialized African country and times 16 of an average country in Africa. And and that adds up to the U.S. alone generating 5.7 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. So with this in mind, you may begin to ponder that if Africa is not so responsible for emissions, why are we so affected by what's going on in the atmosphere by climate change? And this is because a lot of African countries, most African countries are still so reliant on agriculture. And then most African countries have lower financial, technical, and institutional capacity to adapt to climate change. Another reason is because of our geographical location. Um, The African continent has a climate and topology that is very varied and very complex compared to the rest of the world. In fact, we have over, I think, over like 16 different climates um, on the African continent. We have climates such as equatorial climate, tropical wet and dry, tropical monsoon, the semi-desert, the desert, the subtropical highland climates, and just name a few. And in some areas, temperate climate. This is much more varied than any other continent in the world. There's also a weak understanding of climate in Africa, especially because there's missing historical data. So even the process of understanding what is going on is affected. Uh, So to keep that in mind, we should continue to talk more about what are the current impacts of climate change. We've just spilled a bunch of facts at you of the numbers, but what is this actually doing to our continent? Now, like we mentioned, the key indicator of global climate change is rising atmospheric temperatures, that is global warming. And this warming in turn accelerates the hydrologic cycle by increasing its water holding capacity and by increasing its potential evapotranspiration. So average global rainfall will increase with rising temperatures and with the drivers behind its distribution and variation continues. Continuing, this implies even greater precipitation near the equator, further reduction towards the subtropical highs at approximately 30 degrees north and south latitude, and greater intra- and inter-year variability overall. In summary, what this means is that um, it will will intensify existing precipitation patterns with little certainty on extent or geographical variation. Um, An example of such intensification is with the Sahara Desert. The Sahara Desert, as many of you know, is the largest desert in in the world. But what some of you may not know is that the Sahara has been expanding due to shrinking rainfall and extended dry conditions. The Sahara Desert has expanded by about 10%, close to a staggering 1 million square kilometers. If the Sahara Desert was a nation, the expanded area itself would be the 30th largest country in the world. There are, other, there are also reports that other deserts, such as the hot Namib Desert too, is also expanding. So this is just examples of what this intensification of our current patterns look like.
And so all of this is leading to kind of like a domino effect in terms of what's going on on our continent. What researchers are seeing is that this is leading to an exacerbation of all the current problems that we face as a nation, as a continent, including food shortage. We're going to continue to see more drought leading to water scarcity. And in some areas, there'll be intense floodings. So all of this sounds very gloomy and very um, dear, but as we continue the conversation with Habiba, we'll see that there are indeed opportunities to combat these effects and to address them as they are. So please stay tuned. Before we go into our conversation with Habiba, however, we should talk about where our African leaders currently stand on climate change. As you may have already listened to the intro that we had, they are aware of it and they are actively part of the, the groups that are leading change to combat these issues. Over the last decade, African leaders have recognized the common sets of interests in promoting global policies that allow for Africa as a continent to adapt to the effects of global warming already being felt. Notable movements in, began in 2009 when the African leaders came together and endorsed the creation of a committee of African heads of state on climate change. The group was initially led by the late ex-Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Maliz Zenawi, and is currently being led by Gabon's president, President Ali Bongo Odimba. There is also the established Africa Day during COP conferences. Like we mentioned, COP is the conferences of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCC. And the Africa Day during these conferences first began in COP17 and has since become a key feature of Africa's presence and participation at the COP conferences. It is organized by Africa's principal regional institutions, namely the African Union Commission, and its new partnership for Africa's development, AUDANEPAD. The UN Economic Commi Commission for Africa, the African Development Bank, the, African, the Africa Risk Capacity and the Pan-African Parliament in collaboration with AU member states and RECs. Africa Day provides the platform for dialogue, discussion, and call to action on key climate change issues impacting on Africa's development agenda. But combating these challenges that come with climate change in Africa is not easy. Um, it's not as easy as reducing carbon footprint, because as we mentioned, there's not a whole lot of contribution of African countries to carbon footprint and to the global carbon emissions. And it's also very expensive. The Africa Development Bank in a 2012 publication listed that it will cost 40 billion each year to combat climate change in Africa. There's also limited absorptive capacity for African countries to manage the funds at such a scale. And that what this means is that if the African countries, if all 55 African countries receive the 40 billion that they need, as we know, due to lack of fund management and corruption and all those type of things that go on in an African country, they don't expect the funds to be absorbed well and used at the right capacity and all the way down to the local levels that it needs to be used at. 
So with that in mind, we're going to get into the conversation with Habiba, um, where she'll talk about her research, uh, what her focus is, her experience at the COP conferences, and she's going to give us suggestions of what that looks like addressing climate change on our on a country level with Nigeria as a case study. What I've been doing for the past three years is trying to understand the threat that climate change presents to our energy systems and how our energy systems need to adapt to be able to tackle um, uh, climate change. And first of all, let me just discuss the reason why I focus on energy systems is because climate change has largely been a result of fossil fuel use and the bulk of that is within the energy sector. Um, so to tackle climate change, to mitigate against climate change, you need to um, reduce the sources of greenhouse gas emissions, principally carbon dioxide, which comes from the burning of fossil fuels. A lot of that is in the energy sector, um, which we use to provide residential or industrial services or, and transport services as well. Right. So climate change, the Paris Agreement, where all countries came together initially to keep uh, global warming to below two degrees by the end of the century it was really a landmark moment for the community because we, for once we had an agreement that all countries were on board, even though the U.S. eventually pulled out and we have Nicaragua and Syria who have slight opposing views about, about the agreement. But generally it showed that finally there was a mainstream acknowledgement that climate change presents a threat and we are going to do something to address it. And by we, I mean the countries of the world. So in my research, what I look at is at a national level, how countries need to transform their energy systems to be able to deliver their climate change commitments under the Paris Agreement. So under the Paris Agreement, each country developed uh, what we call NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions, um, to say how much they were going to contribute to delivering that Paris Agreement target. Um, the reason for this, and I think the NDC format was one of the reasons that the Paris Agreement succeeded, um, because it allowed every country to determine the extent of action it was going to take to help deliver that target. Those targets need to be refined every five years, and they need to be more ambitious, but it was a good starting place in 2015. So in my PhD, I focus particularly on the electricity sector. And... Um, for two reasons, really. First is that over the last decade, we've seen um, renewable energy technologies, particularly wind power and solar power, get cheaper and becoming um, commercially viable and even, well, out-competing incumbent fossil fuel generation technologies. Because of that, people are, um, it's come uh, the realization has come that electricity from renewable energy is going to be cheap and abundant uh, going out into the future. And because of that, a lot of other um, energy, the energy sector is looking to use electricity more as a final fuel. And what I mean by that is that instead of um, using petrol for transport or um, using coal in industry, people are looking to electrify the end use of energy. So electricity is becoming an important energy carrier in the world. And I think going 
if I have the statistics right, is going to 2050, we're going to see final end use of energy being 60% of it being from electricity. So decarbonizing the electricity sector will be very key to decarbonizing the energy system going into the future. And so for these two reasons, on the cost side and on the increasing importance of electrification, it made sense for me to focus on how power sectors in particular need to transition um, going out to uh, the end of the century in order to deliver the NDCs. The two countries I focus on in particular are the UK, by virtue of the research grant that I was given, and also Nigeria, because um, I, I am from Nigeria, and I think Nigeria is a very interesting case study. Um, Nigeria exemplifies the threat of climate change and the many, I guess, the potential, um, if I can say, the, the potential threat that climate change presents when you have a demographic explosion also taking place alongside it. Um, Nigeria is a country that is large with 180 million plus people, a growth rate that is above 2%, it's significant, and it's soon going to be, well, by the middle of the century, it's going to be um, the third most populous nation in the world, at least as projections so far say. Nigeria was also a particularly interesting case study because Nigeria does not have much of an energy system. Energy consumption in particular is significantly below the world average and is significantly below the average of other developing countries, for example, when we compare with Southeast Asian countries. So what I found particularly interesting in my research is to understand the challenge of dealing with economic development, a demographic explosion, while at the same time trying to decarbonize an economy. So the challenge is twofold, is you need to grow the economy and then you need to do that in a sustainable fashion, which if we look to how um, advanced economies such as the UK or the US, they, they were very much reliant on fossil fuels, which ended up creating the climate change in the first place. Right. So in my research, the key focus is what are the technologies, power generation technologies that we need to deliver um, decarbonization? what are the policies that we need to put in place to make, um, to realize um, these technologies at the scale that is necessary to deliver climate change mitigation? And also, is it possible, and this is the final, and I, I look at as a key question of my research is, does decarbonization um, complement um, economic development or will it be a barrier to um, achieving economic development at the rate that we want? Right. So generally, that's what I do. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I was just um, following you. I said very interesting. Please, please go on. So, so exactly. So that's um, for the UK, I'll probably discuss the kind of the advanced economy view of of decarbonizing the power sector and then discuss Nigeria, which I think is, the, is a very interesting case for the developing country perspective. In terms of the UK, a lot of strides have already been made because over the last decade, um, as renewable energy technologies were being developed, particularly wind and solar power, um, the government very much took uh, an important role to subsidize those technologies to ensure that the costs were brought down and that attract to a level that 
meant they didn't need subsidization in the future and they would be able to scale on their own. That was done very successfully and we've seen the, U the UK's um, uh, power grid decarbonize very quickly. However, renewable energy poses a problem because it's variable by nature, it's intermittent as um, kind of we say in, um, in our lingo or research lingo you do need another source of power generation to complement them to ensure that you have a reliable electricity grid because the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time. So really the challenge for, I, I feel for particularly the climate, the pro-climate economies, advanced economies now is not really delivering um, wind and solar power that is cheap is finding a way to continue scaling them while, while ensuring that the electricity um, service to consumers remains reliable. And that means um, energy storage services, that means having base load or dispatchable generation that can complement renewable energy. By, dispatch, by dispatchable generation, I mean just a power plant that can be switched on and off when it needs to be, so it can complement um, solar power and wind power and that has been the challenge or that is the challenge that's been addressed currently you know typically the UK has used natural gas fired power plants to play that compensating role even though natural gas is a lot cleaner than coal power it's still a fossil fuel and it still has a carbon footprint so now the bulk of the energy is going into delivering energy efficiency to minimize demand and also developing um, renewable form, uh, renewable generation that is dispatchable. So that's either nuclear power, which is controversial in itself, and also some of the technology known as carbon capture storage, where you can use fossil fuels, but instead of emitting the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you store it underground. These technologies are proven so they're technically um, um, viable however um, commercially they are very expensive with a huge capital outlay and a lot of the conversation currently within i think the uk the eu and i'd say and, and i'd extend it to the us as well is what are the business models that we can implement to drive down the cost of some of these technologies that look to be crucial to getting to net zero because the conversation in in Europe has moved to getting to a net zero um, economy by mid-century. Um, how do we, how can we have a private uh, sector-led expansion of these technologies? What is the, what are the policies that we need to put, put, it, put in place? And it's, it's proving difficult at the moment where there's a lot of energy um, being put into devising um, schemes that can really get these technologies to take off the ground. And I'm sure within the next 10 years, we are likely to see a, a carbon capture and storage plant at a utility scale and or additional nuclear power plants, which obviously have also been expensive and particularly face a lot of public resistance, even though they are a form of zero carbon power generation. From the Nigerian context, um, what is particularly interesting is that Nigeria has never generated more than about 4,500 megawatts of power. So if I were to compare that, um, the World Bank tend to use a metric known as megawatts per million um, to compare um, energy access and um, across different countries. 
if we assume Nigeria had 200 million people, Nigeria would be getting about 22, 23 megawatts per million people, which is obviously uh, very little. And um, I think it indicates, it's an indicator of how dire the state of the, um, how dire the energy crisis is within the Nigerian space. Nigeria was particularly interesting to me, not because it's, it's my country, but also Nigeria is a country that is a leading oil, oil producing state. So it's always had an abundance of energy resources, but also by virtue of its geography and its, um, its sheer size in terms of um, land footprint, it has a lot of renewable uh, energy resources av available as well. So the question I asked myself during my research is, how do we utilize Nigeria's energy resources, both renewable and fossil fuels, um, to deliver um, the, the, the amount of energy that Nigeria would require to develop because the lack of energy is um, a hindrance to economic development, but also to then determine what policies do we need to put in place to make it easier to develop via a more sustainable route largely utilizing renewable energy resources as opposed to using the fossil fuels that we have available in the country. So I'll talk generally about my initial findings. Um, it's, it's ongoing. Um, I'm completing my PhD, but this research is ongoing. And what's really interesting is that although renewable energy technologies are still very expensive, in Nigeria because it's a very, it's a high risk environment or should I say a perceived high risk environment for investment. Even though the cost of those technologies, the capital costs of those technologies are double what they would be in other parts of the world. What was very interesting for me to find out was to see that they still made it on just the numbers on an e a purely economic basis, it was much cheaper to develop renewable energy resources, in particular in the north of the country, to complement our existing hydro um, power resources, mm -hmm. and then have that complement some of the natural gas um, uh, resources that we have in the south. So just for context, currently Nigeria on average produces about 4,000 megawatts. A quarter of that comes from hydropower, three dams that we have mostly in Niger state, mm -hmm. and the rest comes from natural gas fired power plants, which are really concentrated in the southwest and the south-south of the country because it's close to the um, oil and um, it goes close to the oil and the gas fields. It's a good position to be when you have, Nigeria has about 40 years worth of proven gas reserves at current extraction rates and a lot an abundance of oil reserves as, as well. But in terms of the power sector, natural gas is particularly important. And from my research, I see, I see a real opportunity for Nigeria to dramatically grow its energy supply, utilizing its own resources, which means creating jobs within its borders, um, and having each region, I mean, we call it geopolitical zone, really play a part so there isn't a concentration of the development in one region, right? If we have renewable energy resources being developed in the north of the country and natural gas infrastructure and power plants being, being developed in the south of the country, we see development um, uh, across the board, which given Nigeria's ethnic 
fragmentation, I think is very important to ensure that that equity or that sort of balance, because that perception is very important. Yeah. And then it comes to why, why hasn't this happened? If it makes economic sense and it's the cheapest way, so why hasn't it happened? And the Nigerian energy sector has a, a number of problems but principally it's failed to attract private investment to maintain even existing power plants not to mention private investment to build new ones and that's because we have an artificially um, imposed electricity tariff the electricity tariffs charged across the country are below the cost of actually supplying that electricity which means we have utilities that are able that are unable um, to survive they have a lot of debt um, there's a lot of um, polit political backlash to increasing the cost of electricity because um, the population is found to be so sensitive. So one thing I monitor is over the last three years that the NERC, the Nigerian the Electric Electricity Regula Regulatory Commission, has instituted tariff rises. The Senate has always um, reversed that because it's such a it's such a political issue. That is one of the barriers. And it's, it's, I would say it's the biggest barrier to, that needs to be addressed. It needs to be understood that investment cannot be driven by government alone. The World Bank is not going to provide grants to electrify the whole of Nigeria. Private sector has a huge role to play. And, but then the role of the government is now public engagement. It's um, campaigning to understand. So the population really understand why that tariff increase is necessary. You know, I think most people are, particularly in urban centers like Lagos, which has in, independent power plants, are understanding that if you pay more, you get a better quality of electricity service. It's now time to mainstream that knowledge and really engage the rest of um, okay. the rest of the country um, to to understand that, so that we can get to the point where we have cost-reflective tariffs. Um, one thing I want to talk about in terms of tariffs is, particularly within the context of climate change, we are trying to make it easier to build renewable energy resources as opposed to fossil fuel ones. A big barrier to that, through the subsidy of the um, electricity tariff, because it's an implicit subsidy, we are also subsidizing fossil fuels, essentially. And Nigeria has fossil fuel subsidies for petrol, uh, diesel was the diesel market. I think was deregulated under President Goodluck Jonathan, um, but petrol is still heavily subsidized, and also natural gas is now subsidized because you're because you're subsidizing the electricity tariff. If we want a level playing field for renewable energy sources, they must have they must be able to compete on the same basis. Right. I was going through the international. Energy Agency's recent Africa Energy Outlook for 2019, and Nigeria is spending something that looks like $2.9 billion per year on fossil fuel subsidies. I can see that being such, um, I understand the political nature of subsidies. It's a very contentious issue, and they are very difficult to remove because of backlash. We've seen in other countries when for, um, subsidies have been removed in places like Iran, the chaos that came afterwards. So. It's, it's not that we don't sympathize with the political issue, but it's such a necessary precursor to having a functioning electricity market. And also, it's important that the government does not artificially pick winners 
within the energy sector. And given that climate change is such an issue, if we did need to subsidize any technologies, those subsidies should be going to renewable energy sources and those forms of generation, which is what happened in um, other parts of the world and drove down the cost of those technologies. So I think um, that is a big barrier establishing a level playing field for all power generation technologies so that renewables can improve their competitiveness initially and then obviously scale up from that. Um, another form of, well, this is not a subsidy, but um, in terms of policies that help facilitate the deployment of renewable energy technologies in the country. Initially, the import uh, tariff had been cancelled on solar panels and it was reversed within a year and a half to, and it's now I think 20 to 30% of the cost of, of the solar panel needs to be paid as an import tariff. Policy uncertainty um, deters private investment. Everybody knows that, and particularly when it's targeted at an industry that is new and needs to be supported to grow, it's particularly um, disadvantageous. And we need to mainstream, um, we, uh, I say we, but government needs to understand this, that this to establish an industry, you must support it in its early stages, as has been done in other countries, as has been done in other African countries, okay. who are now, um, particularly in East Africa, which are now really reaping the benefits of electrification via standalone renewable energy, solar systems in particular, or mini grids. So it's important on, on, on that we do get the policy and the regulatory framework correct to encourage renewable energy resources, which will then just help improve electricity access across the board. It's important to implement policies um, that encourage private investment, whether that is removing fossil fuel subsidies, a cost-reflective tariff, or even just maintaining um, uh, a transparent foreign exchange regime. Um, some of the barriers to renewable energy um, development are more generally barriers to investment within the country, such as things like foreign exchange uncertainty. Another thing I think needs to be addressed in terms of um, both the developing the energy sector as well as climate change is education. Right. I think that it's at, and I'll, I'll get to discussing my COP25 experiences, but one of the things that really caught me off guard at COP is a lady from the World Resources Institute came to me and said, oh, can you say, can you just discuss climate ch change in your native tongue? So I'm, I speak Hausa and I go, well, I don't even know where to start because I don't know what, what I would refer to as climate change in the local language. Mm. How do we, I don't have a word for it. I don't have a word for climate, for climate change, for agricultural practices, for adaptation. I don't know that vocabulary and probably that vocabulary does not exist. So how do we not only educate, but how do we educate, how do we create new language to educate people um, in their own tongues? Because at the end of the day, the bulk of the people that are very vulnerable to climate change do not speak English. They're usually disenfranchised and part of the lowest income groups in society. So how do we design educational campaigns, first of all, to reach them? What forms of mass media do we need to reach really those isolated communities across the country and what um in what form in what language do we then prepare these campaigns um to enable them to understand and i think something i'll do, I'll, I'll discuss later on the adaptation measures is 
I think this is particularly important for farmers, mm -hmm. rural subsistence farmers, um, who are very vulnerable to climate change. So just focusing back to my, my research in the energy sector is that the opportunity presents itself where we see policy barriers, we see social um, barriers in terms of Nigerians sometimes do not abide by the rule of law. You know, we right. have illegal tapping of electricity networks. We've had cases of confrontation of um, staff from distribution companies when they come to collect the bills or when they come to disconnect the services. The BBC had a great um, documentary showing how communities conspired to reconnect themselves onto the grid, which is very um, dangerous. Wow. After they'd been disconnected after they'd been disconnected and you know, two people two the two men who were climbing the poles were putting their lives at risk right. because they're trying to reconnect without the expertise and without the required uh, equipment as well. Okay. So it's there, there, there's such a massive um social and educational side to this to understand and and a big barrier to this is trust, right? How do you trust the government to do the right thing for you given the atmosphere of distrust that generally exists in Nigeria between um, Men and people. the population and the government, right? It's very much seen as us versus them. Um, they're not seen as doing, having our best interests at heart, uh, at heart. And I think that's more generally in terms of government needs to really show its commitment um, to the communities that it's serving, particularly at the local level, right? I think local politicians are very important for this. This is a local and the state governments. Um, it's important to see that your politicians are engaging with you. They want to know of your experiences. They want to identify the critical areas that need to be addressed. Um, and they will voice your concerns when they do then engage with the federal government because we have such a centralized system and sometimes you need the federal government to do so much in the country. Uh, I think that's, that is a huge barrier. Um, in terms of um, technical barriers, we have infrastructure the needs of course infrastructure is a big thing generally the infrastructure deficit in sub-saharan africa is terrible in nigeria nigeria is no different um with particular respect to um power infrastructure is so important for renewable energy development because some of the sites that are so good for renewable energy development for example wind power is in yobe and it's in zamfara two states who have really incredible, I was surprised to find that they have incredible wind resources, but the, the drivers of demand are the urban centers, right? So how do we put the infrastructure in place to get power from Zamfara to Abuja, or to get hydropower from, which we already utilize largely in the world, in, in, in the country? How do we then extend that to really get, um, to be able to shift um, loads across the country? power infrastructure is so key, but again, infrastructure is only built when it makes investment sense to build. So it needs to prove viable for the private sector to go and lay down those um, transmission lines or to expand their distribution networks. And so far that hasn't been the case because they have um, such a huge uh, debt burden um, and they're barely um, surviving as they say. The government is constantly having to intervene. I think there's been 1.5 trillion Naira of intervention in the last five years. Oh wow! Because when they're but when the discos are about to collapse, then the government comes up with some money as a bailout. Okay, let's get you for 
to keep going for eight more months. Let's get you to keep going for six more months. And that is just to that, that is avoiding um, addressing the root cause of the problem, which is that we need, um, we have a badly privatized sector, um, but we've had frequent discussions have been had as to the people who bought um, when the sector was privatized in 2013, the people that bought the generation companies, the power plants, and the people that bought the distribution plants really have no business working in the power sector, no expertise. Um, the assets were undervalued. Um, they also did not just have uh, the money really required to keep these utilities running, and we've suffered from it. But you know, corruption is just, I'm trying to avoid, to say the, uh, to avoid saying the word corruption because it's an issue everywhere. Yeah. You know, it pervades everything. Um, it's, it's, you know, so you can, by institutionalizing um, certain frameworks, corruption can be deterred, but we need to see actual action in trying to um, develop this, strengthen our institutions to deter corruption. Addressing corruption, I, I don't think is the problem. I think corruption goes when you do the right thing in terms of your institutions and your regulatory framework and you, you set up transfer, um, transparent means of actually addressing issues within any given sector, not just the power sector. So generally, I think as a good overview, that's where I see um, Nigeria's energy system is grossly underdeveloped. There's a lot of opportunity to both improve the quality of energy supply, at the same time do so in a sustainable fashion, At this point, Habiba describes to us what her thoughts are on some of the ongoing efforts to use renewable energy on small scale levels to improve living conditions. It's great for somebody to be able to have a light bulb so they can read for longer hours, but that does not directly translate to an increased paycheck for the farmer in the village, right? It's important to ensure that energy access translates into a better livelihood. And I think that that means that the quality of energy that you you have you need to give people needs to be sufficient to sustain some form of a livelihood. If we're talking about rural areas where the bulk of the the working population are farmers, it means you need to provide energy access that can sustain cold storage for their harvest for their uh, harvested agricultural produce or maybe processing equipment or can enable them to transport it to nearby uh, demand centers or markets. That is the type of um, energy quality that we need to be delivering, not just for someone to be able to listen to a radio and to have two light bulbs in a hut. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's something to be applauded. And I think for a long time, the phrasing of climate change, Africa, climate change in Africa and renewable energy was targeted as those very small scale solutions. But fortunately that, that is changing and people are really thinking about developing renewable energy to deliver um, development and to improve livelihoods. And I think if people can see that the, the development is having a direct impact on their livelihoods, you get a stronger social contract and you build trust because they're now they have a vested interest in the success of that project. And I think that's, that's important in Nigeria. And I think that's probably important in most sub-Saharan African countries that need to uh, develop their energy systems and tackle climate change. Thank you for sharing. Um, I, I, I think we 
hit all of the key points that we wanted to talk about today. And um, I like that, especially that you mentioned how where we see renewable energy right now in Africa seems to be in the smaller devices and small time things, but how to scale that, that it affects everyday livelihood and development is really important. I like that you shared about your, ex- your experience at the COP25 um, or COP25. I'm not sure if it's pronounced as COP. Yeah, yeah, COP, yeah. Up right now. Um, and just thank you so much for the time. No, that's absolutely fine. Um, As always, we here at Pod Save Africa, we don't just like to provide you with information. We like to also provide you with resources if you want to get more information about what we've spoken about and also ways that you can get involved if, as you would like. So with that in mind, there are, some, there are a few key, organ- there are a lot of organizations, but to highlight three, that you could check out or support if this is an issue that is particularly dear to you or something that you have garnered interest in. And these organizations include 350africa.org, the African Group of Negotiators.org, and if you're in South Africa, um, cap.org.za, and that's a South African environmental agency. In addition, if you just want resources to read more about um, this ongoing issue and to stay informed, you can, of course, check out the UNFCC's website at unfccc.int. You can also check out the IPCC's website at ipcc.ch. There's also a great article on the brookings.edu, that's B-R-O-O-K-I-N-G-S.edu. They have a publication called the Foresight Africa 2020. And in there are a few articles, including one by Ngozi Okonjo-Iwila, my apologies, about how Africa can fight against climate change. And these are just a few resources that you can check out. Of course, this will be linked in the show notes for more information. Uh, Thank you again for listening to me. Uh, It was lovely bringing you this intro. And please reach out to us on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, if you have some wonderful insights or if you just have a few comments for us. You can also check us out on our website and you can contact us there as well, or you can just get more information about the episode, including all of these show notes.